0: Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Foster Warrior Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ, Sermons from the Pulpit, Fosteria, Baptist Church. Our scripture reading this week is Malachi 2.17 through Malachi 3.5. Malachi functions as a little bit of a conversation and disputation between the Lord, Yahweh, and his people. The people have some sort of complaint that they raise, sometimes at the very beginning and sometimes near the end, against the Lord, and the Lord ultimately responds and consistently makes it be that the question is not whether he loves them, but whether they love him. The question is not whether... He he is wearying them with his demands, but whether they are wearying him with his dis, with their disobedience, their hypocrisy, and their lack of trust. In this particular time, it is the people of Israel who are wearying the Lord. He starts with that accusation, and they ask the question: How are we doing that? And he says, it's because you think that there is no God of justice. It's because you think that because I have delayed justice, the Lord says, that justice is denied. But indeed, I send my messenger and I send the Lord. I myself will come to the temple and when I come, I will refine it. I will purify it i will purge the temple and purge the people i will purify out the impurities in the righteous and i will purify away the impure unrighteous and those unwilling to repent this then is how it works and whole malachi two seventeen. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts.
1: Matthew 21. Matthew twenty one twelve, verses twelve through seventeen. Last week, Jesus approached and then entered Jerusalem with a lot of fanfare. There were people shouting in the streets saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the whole city is stirred up and moved, wondering who is this, that all of this excitement is for. If there was any time in which Jesus was silent about his identity, now he is no longer. But not so much indirectly declaring it, but in clearly demonstrating it, showing it, showing little sign acts of what his authority and identity is. And so we move into a second in Matthew twenty one twelve. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Father, work in us today, as we always need you to do. To cause our hearts to have open eyes, to see your glory, to see your grace, to see your judgment, to see you in your entirety, and to rejoice in that fact. Do your work in us as we always need you to do, to help us to focus in upon the person of Christ and what we learn about him And how this passage speaks to us. And how it is that we can be transformed by the renewal of our mind from this particular text. Lord, ultimately do that work of transformation in us. Lead us in that direction. Lead us in that way. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Last week, we noticed something a little subversive about the way that Jesus first announces or demonstrates his messianic identity. We were sitting there, recognizing the fact that it's as if the people of Israel are wanting a savior from their Roman occupation. They're wanting something like a military deliverer. But yet, Jesus, when he rode into Jerusalem, was not riding on a war horse, but a donkey. The quotation that Matthew directs us to reminds us that he's meek, that's verse 5. Meek and sitting upon an ass. He's meek as he sits upon this young donkey. It's almost as if we're being taken pains to be reminded about his humility, his meekness, his gentility. Just as Matthew has already told us in Jesus' words in Matthew 11, that at core, at bottom, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Which then starts to create a little bit of a tension. Because verses 12 and 13 don't look like something that's gentle and lowly. It doesn't look like the same peaceful donkey ride. We have a, a bit of a tension that can kind of be formed within us of how this particular sign act can be done by the gentle and lowly Jesus. The one who announces his kingdom in the most peaceful way possible, and the sinless Jesus. How is it that he can rage so definitively? We have two themes today. and it's in some sense, we have two different angers and a contrast of them. And so we begin with Jesus' anger in verses 12 to 13. Jesus' anger, Matthew 21, 12 and 13. And Jesus went into the temple of God, and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. And Overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So the setting here is the temple. Jesus walks into the temple of God. And it's then this hub, the center of ritual worship. This is where Israel brings their sacrifices in order to make atonement for their sins or to cover over their sins so that the holiness of God in their midst doesn't lash out against them. This is the place of the heart of the worship. At least, as far as worship is concerned, not directly with the heart. But as Jesus walks into the temple, he doesn't find that to be the basic understanding of what's going on. He instead finds it to be more of a commerce. It's a place for trading. It's a place for economic material and buying and selling. And it is, in some sense, a reality of something that should occur. It's not necessarily likely for us to expect from the far northern reaches of Israel that the animals would be taken. At some rate, you're probably going to have to have money to, try to buy an animal. But all the same, there's something in this that gets Jesus particularly irked. You can also notice that Matthew zooms in the camera, so to speak. There's no mention of all of the great crowd and multitude that was following him in verses 1 to 11. The 12 have faded from view. Throughout the entirety of verses 12 to 17, Jesus alone is who we are looking at. It's Jesus who goes into the temple. And we don't see the disciples come back in until they marvel at the cursing of the fig tree in verse 20. And so Jesus here, we watch him, we watch this decisive moment, and he goes into the temple, and he throws people out. He throws out those who sold and bought in the temple. And just so that we get the point, Matthew continues to say that he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold dumps. If we think of gentle in terms of how you would pet an animal, then this is not very gentle. It's dramatic. It's violent. Tables are being tossed over. Seats are being overturned. Jesus is enraged, and he is acting out in that type of rage. If he were not the God-man, if we didn't know that he was perfectly sinless and never did anything sinful, we'd probably say that he was having something like a temper tantrum. But though it looks like a temper tantrum, it can't be a temper tantrum. He's not overcome by his feelings in that way. It's an important, significant, interpretive act of emotion that he's fulfilling. And thankfully, Jesus speaks to explain it as well. He says in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. Let's turn to Isaiah 56 together. Jesus' announcement of his rage is a combination of two texts from what we call the Old Testament. And the first of those texts is Isaiah 56, 7. We will start reading in verse 1, however. Isaiah 56, 1. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment. And do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my sabbaths and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls, a place and a name, better than of sons and of daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the strangers that join themselves to the Lord, to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Isaiah 56, 1-8 is promising that there will be a restoration of true worship in Jerusalem. It's promising that the salvation is near to come and righteousness to be revealed. And in light of the fact that salvation is soon to come, in light of the fact that restoration is soon to come, the Lord is telling his people to keep judgment. And do justice. He's calling them to true, obedient living. And in that sense, then, true, worshipful living as well. Keeping the Sabbath and keeping his hand from doing any evil. And in particular, he wants to make sure that no one thinks that they're cut off because of circumstances surrounding their lives. Eunuchs are not just to say, I'm a dry tree, so I will never have a stake in this. Sojourners are not just supposed to say, well, I wasn't of Abraham's line, so therefore I'm excluded from this. But instead, he's declaring that his temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. Any from the nations who would genuinely live in worshipful and obedient living. And so he calls for that repentance, and he calls for the people to keep justice and to live in that way that is pleasing to the Lord, that is befitting those who are treasured by him. So Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer. But then he also says, ye have made it a den of thieves. And for that, you can turn to Jeremiah 7. Den of thieves, den of robbers, den of nationalistic rebels, perhaps even. Certainly not a house of prayer for all nations and this this Jesus gets from Jeremiah 7:11 but we again start in Jeremiah 7 verse 1 the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying stand in the gate of the Lord's house And proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, and enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come, and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, And I called ye, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed." Isaiah 56, 7 is in the context of calling for true and worshipful living. True, worshipful, and obedient living because salvation is near. But Jeremiah seven eleven is in the midst of a passage that calls for true, worshipful, and obedient living because judgment is near. It's a call to repent because, Jesus, because the Lord has an accusation against the people of Israel. They're not living rightly, and they need to turn from it. Indeed, it's not just that they're not living rightly. It's not just that they're oppressing the stranger, fatherless, and widow. It's not just that they're stealing, murdering, and committing adultery and swearing falsely. It's not even just that they're going after other gods. It's that they're doing those things and then saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're sitting there and saying that they are delivered to do whatever they want to do because they serve the Lord at his temple. They engage in some aspect of ritual worship, and therefore they assume that the ritual allows them to live however they want to the rest of the time. And the Lord then says, have you made this house called by my name? but a den of robbers? Have you made it to be just an excuse to not have to worry about how you live, whether you live in a way that is befitting one who belongs to the Lord or not? Whether in the old covenant and the rituals of sacrifice or in the new covenants and the rituals of church attendance and like the, Lord's the Lord doesn't want us to use those rituals as an excuse to live however we want the rest of the time. He wants it to be one particular expression and one particular refreshing point as we continue to live worshipful lives every day. As we continue to live obedient lives, trying to thoroughly amend our ways at all times. Not using the worship for any sort of personal gain. Not using the ritual to cover up living however we want. Jesus then looks around at all of the commerce going on in the temple and he sees it as a sign of a deeper problem. A problem that worship of Yahweh has become all about ritual and self-benefit And not ultimately about expressing true thankfulness and obedience to the Lord. It had become about self seeking. It had become about them rather than about the Lord. It had become something to be leveraged for personal gain. And so Jesus acts in anger. He drives out these money changels. He flips over the tables. This false worship irked him to the point where he responded in violence. And then the text keeps going. He stays in the temple. Some interesting things happen as we move into the second scene, which we're largely going to focus in upon the priest's anger. At the scene two, Verses 14 to 17, the priest's anger. Matthew twenty-one fourteen. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. The first thing we should notice is verse 14. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple, and Jesus heals them. This is more the thing that we've come to accept from the gentle and lowly Jesus. He heals those who come to him genuinely seeking mercy. The blind and the lame receive help. But it's interesting, because realistically we'd think that the blind and the lame would be scared. It's odd that they approached Jesus in the first place. But perhaps it's well summed up in the Caroline Cobb lyric from the song Who is This Jesus? I saw the demons, they run, but the children safe in his arms. Perhaps they recognize that there's a different way in which he responds to the money changers, is how he responds to people who genuinely seek mercy. Or as John Calvin would later describe, as he's thinking about pastoral ministry, that the pastor ought to have two separate voices. One for bringing in the sheep, and another for driving away the wolves. But at any rate, they're not afraid of this man who just acted in such rage. And they receive mercy from him as they are healed. But then the priests are angry. The chief priests and scribes see the wonderful things that he did. They see probably the healings, but given their sore displeasure, given their frustration and anger at it, they probably also saw and were taking note of the fact that tables were overthrown. And not only that, but they can hear the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save us now to the Son of David. The same thing that the crowds were saying as Jesus was marching towards Jerusalem. Now the children are saying in the temple, declaring praise to this one. And so, with anger, with sore displeasure, the priests and scribes say, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear this praise coming from these children? There seems to be almost an implicit request that the, that are from the Pharisees, from sorry, from the priests and scribes that these individuals be silenced. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, in the middle of verse 16, we read that he said, Yea, have ye never read? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Instead of rebuking the children, he asks again about the reading practices of his opponents asks them whether they're actually in the book that they are professing to teach, And he directs their attention to Psalm 8. Have you not read that David wrote, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise? That David could pray to the Lord, saying that the Lord receives praise from unexpected places, from babes and sucklings, even as David begins to meditate upon creation in Genesis 1, from us creatures of dust, those are the ones that have been crowned with glory and honor, rather than the heavenly beings, rather than the stars, rather than lots of things that are made a lot more majestic than me. But it is we whom he has chosen and it is out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. In this instance, children crying in the temple in which the Lord will receive his praise. Not the priests and scribes. Not the ones who study the the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. Not the ones who are of the religious elites who you would think would be the ones that would first understand who this Jesus is. Rather, it comes from the mouth of babes and sucklings that Jesus has perfected praise for himself, receiving it through shouting in the temple of the Lord. And then verse 17, And he left them, and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. He leaves the city, he leaves Jerusalem, he finds himself in a nearby city of Bethany, and he lodges there. And so the episode in the temple finishes. We have these two angers. We have the anger of the priest serving as a bit of a foil They're angry because there's these mighty works being done. They're angry because the children are shouting in the temple. We don't know entirely all of why they are angry. But we can tell enough to see that it's not for any genuine purpose. They're angry about the truth being told by the children. They're angry about their false worship being exposed. Perhaps they're even angry about the fact that if Jesus has the authority, they wouldn't. But in contrast to that, Jesus' anger seems very different. We can go back to that first question and kind of wonder how a sinless, gentle, and lowly Jesus can rage in this way. But in fact, we completely misunderstand It's not in spite of his sinlessness, nor in spite of his gentleness, nor in spite of his compassion that he engages in the anger against these money changers. In fact, it is because he is sinless. It is because he is gentle, and it is because he is compassionate that he rages against this false worship. I think we're prone to think of sin too lightly. Not to remember that the reality of sin is such that it causes separation from God, causes condemnation and eternal fire and torment. Sin is not something that can be trifled with. And so in actual fact, indifference in the face of great evil In the face of false worship, in the face of using the worship of Yahweh for personal gain, indifference in that type of situation, in the situation of Matthew 21, 12-17, would have been sin. Doing nothing would have been sinful, and it would have been uncompassionate to those who genuinely came to the temple wanting to worship, but only having it be perverted by everything else going on. Indifference would have been harsh. In twenty twenty, Dane Ortland wrote and published a book called Gentle and Lowly, looked at Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through thirty, and looked about how we should reflect upon the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And he has an entire chapter dedicated not just to this instance of Jesus' anger, but every instance of Jesus' anger in the Gospels. And what he has to say about it, pulling a lot off the work of B.B. Warfield, is helpful for us to consider. He writes, A morally perfect human such as Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. Perhaps we feel that to the degree we emphasize Christ's compassion, we neglect his anger. And to the degree we emphasize his anger, we neglect his compassion. But what we must see is that the two rise and fall together. A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him. The severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. No. Compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. It is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. Christ got angry and still gets angry, for he is the perfect human who loves too much to remain indifferent. And this righteous anger reflects his heart, his tender compassion. But because his deepest heart is tender compassion, he is the quickest to get angry and feels anger most furiously. sinlessness compassion gentleness these are the attributes that compel Jesus to act these are ultimately the attributes that cause Jesus to be so angry and to act out in that anger in such violent ways and his anger shows his moral perfection In a way that indifference would have compromised it. The expression of anger can continue to be teased out. That the reality of the situation is that there are always good times for we as Christians to be angry too. Indifference and a life of tolerance as if we live and just let other people live in the same way is not a Christian way of doing things. Sin is too serious to be treated as if it can be ignored in ourselves or in others. The truly compassionate things for individuals who are being trapped and sucked into sin is to call them out on it gently and privately. Not to throw your hands up and say, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. That's how they're going to live. But the thing about how the expression gets teased out continues to be a little bit of a question about the justification of Jesus' anger. here. Because if Peter had been rightly angry at the commerce hubs going on and his reaction was to overturn the tables, we might have a reason to rightly question whether his expression of that anger was correct or not. Jesus coming in and overthrowing the tables in this way, the reason why priests seem to get mad at it is that it's not just a matter of him being rightly angry and responding to it, but him also demonstrating that he has the authority over the temple. He can overthrow the tables and throw out the money changers because it's his authority. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and who can abide the day of his coming? For he shall be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In part, Malachi 3 is fulfilled as Jesus walks into the temple suddenly and purifies it of this false worship. Same type of false worship that Malachi 1 condemned as being worse than no worship at all. And so Jesus coming in is declaring that he is the Lord whom they seek. He is the messenger of the covenant in whom they delight in. He is the Messiah who comes who comes to purify his people, purifying out the impure in all of us and purifying the impure out of us. He came and eventually he died in order to allow for us to be cleansed. At the end of the day, we all have to admit that there are times in which our worship becomes simply ritualistic. There are always times in which we come to the fact of doing our Bible reading, coming to church as a I can check the box, I've There are times in which we use certain aspects of the ritual, of the things we do over and over again as a cover for the fact that we live in sin. We rightly should make it to be and repent so that our worship doesn't continue to stay down that as just going through the motions. But we also have to be glad that it is Hosanna to the Father. That he comes in the name of the Lord to save us from sin. He comes in the name of the Lord so that all who genuinely ask for mercy are healed and receive it. So let's turn. If you haven't already, turn from your sin and come to Christ who died for you and rose again. Genuinely seeking mercy from his hand. Genuinely letting him cleanse all of your sin from you. As you turn to him in faith and repentance. Father, we do thank you for the sinlessness of Jesus. And the perfect anger that he exemplifies against false and perverted worship. We thank you for the love that you show. We thank you for the free grace and mercy to all who repent. And we ask, Lord, That we would properly respond to sin that we see in our own lives and in the lives of others. And that we would properly respond to the rituals as an expression of lives intending to obey you and worship you wholly at all times. May we not treat the communion we're about to take or the coming to church daily or the prayer or Bible study, any of it, Lord. May we not treat those rituals as if they are going to cover over us living however we want. But may we seek to ever grow closer to worship and love you. And I pray, Lord. In Jesus'
0: name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ summers from the pulpit of the story of Baptist Church. Do you remember second Corinthians two fifteen through sixteen? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?